0: Currency Press is Australia's foremost publisher of the performing arts. We've been sharing Australian stories since 1971, and we've always believed in theatre that raises more questions than answers. That's why we're sitting down with some of the country's most respected playwrights and talking to them about their work. Each month we look at one play, over 30 minutes, with insights straight from the source. Hello, I'm Toby Leon, and this is Not In Print. John Romerell was born in Melbourne and wrote his first plays whilst at Monash University, including Chicago, Chicago. He has worked extensively in theatre and film over the years, including dramaturgical work, often with young writers, and as playwright in residence with several theatre companies and tertiary institutions. Romerell helped found the Australian Performing Group in 1970, and until it wound up in 1981, the first performances of his plays were usually at the Pram Factory in Melbourne. Examples include Mrs Tally F, Bastardy, The Golden Holden, and the classic that we're here to talk about today, The Floating World. Les and Irene are celebrating their wedding anniversary. Gifted with the holiday of a lifetime, they set sail on the Women's Weekly Cherry Blossom Cruise, bound for the cultural mysteries of Japan. But amongst the sun hats? theme nights and pina coladas, Les, a former World War II prisoner of war, soon finds himself confronted by old diggers, enemies and tormented memories. As the cruise ship floats closer towards its destination, Les's grip on reality floats ever further away. An electrifying descent into one man's wartime nightmare, The Floating World is a resonating tale of the long-lasting effects of war and the ugly world of xenophobic Australia. John, thank you for talking to me about The Floating World. So what was the impetus at the time of writing the play? What drove you to create the work?
1: I was connected uh, very fondly and grew up with the Australian Performing Group and our charter was significantly nativist. Make it Australian, do shows for Australians, by Australians, about Australia. And you had a sense that
0: that was definitely a moment where this needed to happen, it was time for this to happen.
1: Yeah, I mean, big pressures on Australia to toe the line regarding America, for example, buy into the Vietnam War, and of course, uh, being of conscriptionable age some years before the 70s, I objected to that, as did a lot of my generation, and... Consequently, uh, we were anti-American, which often meant being, well, what is Australia? Mm. What, When we are saying no to America, what are we saying yes to? Mm. And in our case, because we had, like I say, a, a make-it-Australian charter, we were examining our past, Australia's past. We were looking for precursors uh, theatrically and exhuming. The history of other movements that prior to ours had, had made similar moves.
0: You started with a poem that has no punctuation, there's this continual flow. It's about a Japanese businessman's trip over to Australia, prospecting, really, mm. looking for places where he can build monoliths. And I just wonder what you were saying with this poem as the opening to the play. Yeah.
1: The Japanese economy at the time uh, was considered a miracle economy and it had recovered from its devastated wartime condition and it was a very active exporter of goods, a lot of le- electronica and, and so on, but also uh, machine tools and all sorts of things, mm. finally, and cars and uh, so on and so forth. So it was a huge and very important trading partner for Australia at the time. So I looked at the... How does that happen? There's a war. It, it claims amongst its victims in a way, a number of Australians as are taken prisoner. number of defeats inflicted on Australia, great fears in the country in that wartime period of being invaded from the north. Curtain and those governments actually sort of factored it into their thinking even though it thought they thought it unlikely. And even though by then Japan had overextended itself in terms of uh, dealing with the region. I mean, it had, in the 30s, invaded China. Parts of that it had occupied. It was taking out various career. It had again invaded. That was a long thing. So it, it optimised its uh, its purchase and it entered the first the Second World War in 1941. Mm. I mean, there was a European theatre of war and they, for some unbeknown reason, uh, decided to take out Pearl Harbour and that brought America into the Second World War in a significant
0: fashion and into the Pacific. And it brought Liz there as well. Tell me about Liz.
1: Liz had been fighting the Second World War in Malaysia and with the collapse of the British and the ceding of Malaysia, he, with a number of other Australians, was taken prisoner they lived for a certain amount of time in Changi and then a large number of them were shipped to Burma and began to build a Burma-Thailand railroad. And he was part of that, the mob or the portion
0: that, that got stuck there. What drew you to him as a character?
1: I'd always had in my family a sense of the Second World War. I'd long thought about trying to do a, a play set in Papua New Guinea. I don't know if you're familiar with this story, but, but my old man was with the second 22nd that got wiped out by the Japanese in uh, in Rabaul. Six weeks before that happened, or two weeks before it happened, um, he got shifted into the Sixth Division Entertainment Unit because his mother had made him learn saxophone. So the rest of his war was spent as a bandsman. So he played in a big jazz band that
0: it around, doing shows for the troops and so on. Wow. You get a real sense that Les was much more of a performer than we see on the ship. I mean, he's got all of these amazing little right. <laughs> limericks and songs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that he, th- sure. Does your dad, do you think, have a, a lot of influence on the character of Les, or no, did he?
1: No, he didn't. But, once I'd become a member of the APG, you know, in the, as early as the 70s or late 60s, I was thinking of trying to write about uh, the Second World War in New Guinea. Uh, I happened to be studying a lot of, uh, because I had a journal library so I could spend the lunchtime in the stacks. I was reading up a lot on Japanese theatre, on no plays, for example. And so I had a sense of how Japanese theatre, Kyogen and so on, functioned. And Kabuki. So that that wasn't an influence, but I knew about it and uh, I started to think about it. I can see there's a lot of parallels
0: with the vaudeville that you have yeah, in The Floating World.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, so I had from the old man's side, especially when he, when he went into television, I mean, uh, in Melbourne Tonight and Sunnyside Up and stuff, that was the bill. It was a vaudeville bill with an anchor like Graham Kennedy and Bert Newton and so on. Right. But also uh, the comics who'd, who'd moved into television from, from playing Australia in clubs and the tent shows and so on. And so I had in my head these two parallel theatrical attacks, a vaudevillian attack, and a much more refined, mannered, uh, abstract or, or whatever you'd form... Features of of no theatre and and kabuki and so on. Mm.
0: Les was in Singapore before he was captured by the Japanese and for those who don't know about the lead-up to the evacuation of Singapore, it was a masterclass in calamity, a mind-boggling demonstration of of willful ignorance and arrogance by the British. They refused to evacuate earlier despite clear and direct warnings that the Japanese were well-equipped and well-prepared Carnage ensued, and of course many men and women were captured and held as prisoners of war, including Les, and here was a kind of reversal of the world order. The British Empire was in its final throes, and for the first time ever, Australians were held as slaves, en masse, by an Asian nation. Throughout this piece details of Lez's experiences are made painfully clear, and in great detail I'm thinking about the sterilised spoons, yeah, yeah, for example. Yeah, 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 sure. um, so tell me about the research that you did in order to understand the mentality of a soldier whose sense of himself and the world order has been so thoroughly crushed and undermined.
1: Mm. Vis-a-vis mm. all that, uh, one major thing I, I had a bit in my head um, is has it happened uh, in the First World War, a little now in fact. Even our troops on the way to Gallipoli were escorted by the Japanese Navy. So something like two or slightly more than two decades later, Japan is at war with Australia. So topsy-turvy, isn't it? So so that's the world. Mm. The geopolitics of that that period are are pretty significant, but they also have that rather wonderful post-colonial or weirdly... If it's okay for Europe to invade and take over countries, it's okay for Japan. What hypocrites you Europeans are. Fantastic. Um, I like all that. Um, (laughs) And I had in my head to a childhood memory of a guy who lived across the road from us, Bob Hay, who'd been a POW. And he had the skinniest legs you'd ever see and walking for him was still post-war. A uh, difficult thing. He was fine when he got on his fixed wheel bicycle and he went off to work at the Laminate factory down the way a bit. But you know that was kicking around. The old man had played in a band in the world had in the Second World War, hadn't he? And uh, so on and so forth. And I still knew a lot of people that he played with. We'd meet and greet and uh, hang out with our so-called band cousins. So there was that that marriage, and on top of that, of course, being
0: a member of the APG here was perfect, I thought, an Australian topic. Well, let's have a look at life for the POWs working on the Burma-Thailand Railroad, which was constructed in 1943 by command of the Japanese Empire in aid of their forces during World War II. Japanese engineers at the time stated that the completion of the railway involved the building of 4 million cubic metres of earthwork, shifting 3 million cubic metres of rock, and the construction of 14 kilometres of bridge work in a period of about 10 months, which is nothing, really. And in the Burma-Thailand Railway, which is an article that's featured in an earlier edition of The Floating World, we're reminded that by August of 1943, two-thirds of the men in all the workers' camps were hospital patients. Now, POWs formed around a quarter of the workforce, that's approximately 60,000 men, And in the play, you include the sobering fact that 304 POWs died for every mile of track Mm -hmm. laid. Can you describe a day in the life of these POWs as they were forced to construct this enormous project?
1: Mm. Well, they were driven by their bosses, who were, of course, the the Japanese who managed their labour. They would wake, they would be poorly fed. The Japanese themselves too were overextended. Supply lines were um, difficult to say the least. Um, but if uh, if a Japanese soldier got a bowl of rice, uh, a prisoner got a quarter or a half of that. And so these, these guys are doing heavy duty physical labour on a very poor diet. They're working in jungle circumstances where malaria, uh, rains, sanitation is a huge need, often uh, not looked to or impossible to maintain. You, you build a, a latrine, it fills with tropical rain, Shit is floating everywhere. Um, dysentery
0: is, is a, a huge and debilitating complaint. At one point, Les says that he had 18 different diseases Disease. at one time. Absolutely. Is that theatrical or was that real life? That was real. Wow. One guy counted how, how many fucking
1: diseases he had at that moment. That's insane. I know. And uh, so you, 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 uh, virtual skeletons, these guys... Um, picked to work that day Mm -hmm. but um, he's he's sick, I don't believe he's sick, Mm -hmm. he works he works, he works and of course the the Japanese uh, top brass is leaning on the Japanese guards and so on to to keep the numbers high it's just like any labour pick up anywhere in the world If you're standing, you're considered able
0: to work. And I suspect that the horrors of what happened to these men must have overwhelmed you at times as well. And so I wonder what decisions you made about the level of detail that an audience could bear.
1: Anything that's there is all actual. Right. It is... I've sourced it to diaries, I've sourced it to interviews and so on that uh, it's the history this is true and this is this is a generation of people whose sufferings needed to be understood and some accurate assessment of their magnitude
0: uh, recorded in the theater mm-hmm. I'd like to quote from Alan Ashbolt's piece, Nationalist Contradictions, which featured in earlier editions of the play. In it, he says that Les Harding's inability to define and confront the contradictions in his own haunted mind should be the starting point for any critical consideration of what the playwright is saying on a broader front about Australia. And I wonder what comment or comments were you making about Australia through the character of Les? I was leaving it up to
1: Australia to make up its mind about it. I think that's what dramatists do. They leave it open to an audience to put it together. You certainly don't offer easy answers. Absolutely, because that too is is how to be a dramatist. Mm. You don't have answers, you ask good questions. Mm. Uh, or you confront an audience with troubling facts that require an answer and take some ingesting and they're in that gap of, do I really want to know that? Fuck I've been told it. How am I gonna process it? We must accept this man's witness mm-hmm. and we must understand how his response is not inauthentic,
0: but actually a prelude to a kind of mania. By embarking on this voyage aboard the Cherry Blossom Cruise, Les is willingly returning to the motherland of his old oppressors. He was captured by them, tortured, driven like a slave, and worked into the ground. Now he's escaping, please note inverted commas, escaping from Australia on a holiday, but actually imprisoning himself on a floating world bound straight for the epicentre of his buried psychological anguish. Why does Les agree to go on this cruise? He goes along with it. To
1: as that, the wife wants it, the kids to think it's a good idea. He didn't process it from the beginning. It's like being conscripted. Oh yeah, right. We have to go. I mean, that's why it's an interesting story. I think is he's managed to suppress or repress uh, this his, his own history, but suddenly circumstances, e.g., travelling to Japan, suddenly confront him with how wise that's been.
0: You cannot bury your past. So you think his sense of self and his ability to actually be in contact with his own identity is something that he hasn't developed because he's been too poor to and had to survive. He's been conscripted and told what to do and then captured and made a slave and now he just wants to do right by his family and again he's not thinking of himself. I feel
1: that to be a quite normal and natural kind of response. You you just walk away, you suppress, Mm -hmm. you don't... uh, it's old shit. Uh, I mean, that great speech he makes, it, 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 life's not like that now when he's talking to McLaren. yeah, Things have changed. It's a different world we live in. Mm. It's a different world we live in. But by God, a lot of the old world is still being dragged mm. in on your shoes, pal.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. in many ways it's not that different, really, is it? Like... <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> sure, Tell me about Irene. What's, what's her background? Uh, you know
1: working class background, bit like my family in its way, even though my old man was a professional. He also worked in a, in a grocery and so on. But she she's one of my aunts. I, I own her. <laughs> uh, I, I'm, not, I'm not... Does your aunt know that you own her? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not mounting a critique uh, or, a, or a cruel portrayal. It's a fond
0: portrayal. And I hope any a- actress who tackles it finds that possibility in it. I think there is a real fondness there and what I actually found quite interesting was that as Les descends into madness, she actually kind of broadens her scope and starts to appreciate the kind of cosmopolitan life on the cruise she's got Filipinos in the kitchen she's got Pute the Malay waiter who she has a moment with so she actually and she has her whole trip to Japan planned out and is very excited and kind of starts to appreciate the the delicacy and the intricacies I suppose whereas Les becomes much more mono she goes stereo absolutely I mean I loved it when you said that I'd not really consciously thought
1: that way Um, but I thought it's uh, a great Observation and an
0: absolutely true one. Tell me about Robinson.
1: Uh, Robinson, Vice Admiral retired,
0: is a, a, sh- a
1: ship junkie, so he's a cruiser. Wife's gone, um, spends as much time as he can at sea in his retirement. And he, as you do, uh, you run into and uh, get adopted by or Enjoyed by um, weird people. Travel broadens the mind, and for him, uh, part of that broadening is this Australian couple, uh, and his witness to their, to him, fairly odd behaviour, and that from their point of view is this fucking weird pom, um, and you know the bounce between those two points of view. They kind of see each other as an oddity. Yeah. Mm. And it is the other. Uh, but unless you're just sort of stupid, you, know, you realise the other is to be lived with
0: and mm. where possible enjoyed. And you are the other two, actually. Yeah. Mm. I'm interested in MacLeod. Yeah. Tell me about him. I would claim it to be, yeah, just a a, a fairly
1: classical move inside a play. Um, We often have ghost memories or ghosts appearing or whatever, and that's pretty pretty universal. So MacLeod is a figure, it's a projection, if you like, of Les' own conscience.
0: Mm, And he appears at a, um, a moment of weakness when Les is hungover so much so that he has to retire from breakfast. He can't even get through a lamb's fry, I think it is. Mm. And MacLeod is waiting back in the cabin on the top bunk. He kind of goads him a little bit, but also becomes representative, maybe, of all of the men who have experienced battle and that lingering pulse of wartime memories that's just inescapable. Do you think that's... An yeah, I do, I do, I do,
1: He embodies the idea that you can't escape your past. The things you've seen, you've seen. The people you've met, you've met. Uh, and what's happened around you, uh, you've witnessed. What you do with your witness is an issue. And try as you might, it ain't something you can just leave on the shelf or file away or... Much of it comes back to
0: bite you. I'd like to talk about the entertainment officer. So he begins simply as a vaudevillian performance, playful, cheeky, bordering on smart, broadcasting mindless escapism. But he starts to blend with Leser's memories of the war, as everyone does. And at various points, he turns into a news broadcast, an army captain, a soldier. And these transformations, I, I think, have a common thread. He's a messenger, a harbinger. And I wonder, were you commenting on the absurd nature of humanity, even in its most horrific machinations?
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: When was Cabaret around? But Seventy-two or three, I think, yeah, wasn't it? Maybe, yeah, maybe a yeah. little bit later, but With around. Who's the actor
1: him. who plays plays that, that that German cabaret figure? It's it's uh, B.M.C. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure what his name is, but yeah, he's brilliant. Oh, he's fantastic. I might have had shades of that in mind. Right. But there's also the odd moment, um, he is a ship's officer. And hence I thought, well, he can double as an officer in Malaysia and um, things of that sort. I mean, it's just,
0: it's a workforce thing. How many, <laughs> how many
1: bodies are is a man
0: allowed to write for? In your author's note to the second edition of the play, you wrote that the Japanese do not now, or did they ever, have a monopoly on atrocity. We who chose to talk about the burma thailand Railway must do so with Hiroshima and Nagasaki to the forefront of our brains. The point of the play is not to attribute blame, but to contribute understanding. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me how you hoped to contribute to understanding with The Floating World? It's about
1: not forgetting. I am against forgetting. What did you fear people were forgetting or might forget? Um... Anything that strengthens the pacifist impulse in our species is to be welcomed. Any reminders that uh, uh,
0: war ain't the way to solve issues. And considering the great shifts in the Japanese economy and how that transformed their culture in in lots of ways and kind of brought them onto the world stage, And, and what a dramatic shift that must have been for people who had lived through the Second World War and then come to see this great rise. Did you feel that the Japanese offered a great way for you to get at a lot of these issues that you've just been talking about through a source that was once feared and reviled but had now become this kind of bastion of capitalism, but also a very kind of intriguing cultural journey for lots of Australians to take. Was there something about that repulsion and attraction that worked in this context?
1: Um, if you, as I've done, live a certain amount of your life in in Japan, you can't help but be impressed by the peace movement. It's a phenomenal political force. You can't help but be interested in the fact that this country's economic recovery has been as a peace economy. It It doesn't have to shell out for a standing army.
0: I'd like to read a brief passage from Belonging by John McCallum. He has this to say about the final scene of the play. The play concludes with a magnificent long speech, in which, finally articulate, Les recounts his experiences, reveals his survivor guilt, and quietly goes mad. Strapped into a straitjacket, he tells us the story of his triumph in camp, when he was dying of beriberi and he stole the Japanese officer's precious vitamin B tablets. He kept them from his mates, and saved himself. Now the present Les is about to be carted off to an institution – But in his memory of that victory, he is finally, as he says, well again. And when I read that speech, despite what I'd thought of Les up until that point, I was deeply sad to see before me a man doomed by his own history and lack of support. And I want to understand why you decided it was important that he lost control so irrevocably. Again, it's what's the dramatist's task?
1: I think it's to leave an audience with a hugely concrete image of something that's concerning. Here's a guy who thinks he's well again, and yet we know he's about to be institutionalised, or is institutionalised, is undergoing mental distress of a high order. Of course, the poignancy of that I find quite poetically strong. Uh, Here's a guy who's had beriberi. He describes the symptoms. He describes what it's like. Uh, It's a disease whereby your body just bloats with fluid. Your movements are slowed down. You're almost like a Michelin man. Uh, And you hear this fluid inside your chest and so on uh, sloshing around whenever you make a movement and so on. That's one of the 18 diseases this guy had. And he remembers, with something verging on a relief mixed with pleasure, mixed with fondness, of how finally he pissed it out in Bob Fox's magnificent urinal, which was a 24-foot length of bamboo holes cut in the sections and punched through the pieces so that you could drain the piss away and 24 blokes could play it at once. Now that's an example of how health and sanitation was being looked to in camp and it was so essential. But the focus that those guys had on their bodily state was intense. They knew the syndromes that, they knew the diseases they were likely to contract. They looked for signs. They'd been through dealing with their ulcerated feet. They they listened to their bodies. And yet the body was the site on which the war was waged. And for me, the, the game theatrically is being played on affecting an audience and warning an audience against forgetting.
0: Could have been you. Lucky it wasn't. Look at the poor bastard. John, thank you very much for sitting down to talk to me about the floating world. No problem. Thanks for asking such good questions. Thanks for listening to this episode of Not In Print. We hope you enjoyed hearing more about this great Australian play. You can find out more about who we are and view our full catalogue at currencypress.com.au. And if you have any comments or questions about this episode or any other episode, we'd love to hear from you. Just search for Currency Press on Facebook or Twitter and drop us a line. This episode was produced by Currency Press, with the generous assistance of the Department of Performance Studies and the School of Letters, Art and Media at the University of Sydney.